morning. You doing well? Good. It's nice outside. The weather's good. It's not as hot, which I'm a huge fan of. I think I say that every time I'm up here during the summer. Is uh, I, I'm just running hot all the time. You can ask uh, my wife. My daughter just instantly falls asleep when I hold her because um, it's just uh, like just so cozy right away. Um, I thought she got sick a couple weeks ago with a fever, and I thought I gave it to her because <laughs> I'm just so warm all the time. That's not how it works. Uh, I'm, I'm learning. But uh, yeah, it's been an adventure. It's been fun. Uh, it's been a good start to the summer so far. We're in our Summer of Hope series uh, that we just kicked off. And what a week last week hearing Ashley talk about Charity Water and this vision for our church to begin being a part of something bigger than ourselves, bigger than our community, and seeing clean water given to other places in the world where that seems like it should just be such a normal thing for each and every one of us. And so we get to be a part of something uh, really exciting. And so I just continue to encourage you to check that out. And, uh, you know, there is no limit, small or big, to the donation that you can give. Um, But you're a part of something bigger when we consider how we can be a part of that together. Have you ever placed your hope in something or, or someone that's maybe let you down? Anybody? Yeah? Maybe, maybe you've placed your hope in that thing or that person and you found yourself back to where you started pre-hope, feeling a little bit hopeless, hopeless. How do you maintain hope in this world? How do you maintain hope when it seems easier at times to, to not hope for anything? To not hope for anything. Be, be hopeless. Have less hope. You know, if you stood at the altar and said things like, until death do us part, and you thought that that was binding and, and serious enough, but the other person decided it actually didn't mean that. It wasn't going to mean until death. It was going to be until somebody else came along. You felt that sense of hopelessness and helplessness. Maybe you understand that tension today. Maybe you've been working extremely hard at work. You've been putting in the time. You've put all of your hopes and all of your aspirations into that job, that advancement, that opportunity, that move, that shift, that transition, and you found yourself in bewilderment, wondering, what is taking so long? I thought that was going to me. Maybe you're here today wondering, why even try? If you've, you know, had aspirations for your son or your daughter, you know, parents in the room. I'm starting to, to know what this feels like a little bit. But, but even if you're not a parent, you know, all of us have people that we care about genuinely in life. All of us see, you know, the younger generation begin to rise up and we begin to think and dream and have aspirations and hopes for their life and the kind of person that they will be. And when you look at uh, at the the people that they're around and you start to see them grow up and you start to see the behavior shift and things start to change and all of a sudden that hope and that desire you had for that person's life begins to look and reflect completely differently than what's taking place in that person's heart. It's difficult to have hope. Imagine seeing someone that you are so invested in, that you care so deeply about, turning out to be so much less than what you hoped they would be. You can't go back and change anything. You can't fix it. You're you're stuck. You're feeling this tension of, well, what now? What do you do when you look at the situation and it feels more hopeless than hopeful? How 
And where in this world are we to build our hope? To place a foundation that is secure enough to put hope in. Because listen, whether you believe in God or not, looking around, you would probably agree with me that we live in a hopelessly broken world. Anyone ever spent any time on the Fort Saskatchewan River? Anybody? Done a river float? Maybe blown up an inflatable? Yeah, let's see your hands. If, yeah, a few of you. Ah, Spencer, first one. Yeah, perfect. So probably the reason that your hands aren't up is because you understand this to have some risks. And, um, you know, it, it does have some risks, but, you know, if you've been on a lake and maybe you've, you know, used an air mattress, you've pumped it up, you know, you, you float out on the water, maybe not an air mattress, maybe, uh, maybe a pool inflatable or something like that. When I was a kid, it was an air mattress, which is just so much fun. Um, you know, I remember as a kid reading the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, being fascinated by the symbolism of the raft. The raft, which served as Huck and Jim's transportation down the Mississippi River, symbolized freedom from the rules of society. When they're on the raft, Huck and Jim are free to act as they see fit. Jim is no longer a slave. Huck is no longer a runaway. Instead, they are masters of their own fates. Huck says in chapter 18, it says this, we said there weren't no home like a raft after all. Other places do seem so cramped up and smothery, but a raft don't. You feel mighty free and easy and comfortable on a raft. See, it's on the raft that Huck and Jim feel most comfortable. I was 23 years old when I had the opportunity to feel this kind of comfort and freedom. My friend Josh came up with a brilliant idea to construct and put together a raft. Now, he said he had done this before to use um, old, big, blue, giant chlorine barrels that were emptied, uh, two-by-fours as the deck, and construct our very own raft to float down the North Saskatchewan River. After discussing with our significant others, um, maybe which is why Elise left the room here, um, we decided that, yes, we were capable of this task, and it was going to be awesome. We secured some wood from Kijiji for extremely cheap, barrels from a friend. We picked those up. We had all that we needed to begin construction. And uh, Devon, Alberta made for the perfect launching point, the perfect boat launch, just far enough up the river that we could have a nice long day float. It was far enough away from where we could leave the car and yet enjoy the slow curving Fort Saskatchewan River spending the day. It was going to be great. Sign number one that we shouldn't have done this. The weather was terrible. Not sunny, not warm. It was going to be a cold day, okay? It wasn't, it wasn't hot. Sign number two that we shouldn't have done this. He forgot a drill and any other tools other than rope, deck screws, and a hammer. Sign number three that we shouldn't have done this. I noticed him begin, by taking the hammer, begin smashing in the deck screws <laughs> into the deck, constructing the frame first and then laying on the boards. He kept complaining about his wrist. Oh, my wrist really hurts. The amount of effort that you have to put to hammer in a screw should be a sign to stop it. <laughs> Don't do it, right? It was not a good sign. But we finished construction, and it was all holding itself together, and we sat back, and we were impressed with ourselves. We were proud. What a beautiful raft. This thing was ready for its maiden voyage. 
After loading up on the raft and getting it all set and the barrels underneath and tying them nice and tight and putting it down, people, onlookers, looked at us and were like marveled at the construction of this beautiful raft. We climbed aboard and Elise and Josh's significant other came aboard as well and we began to press off from the boat launch in Devon. It was interesting. The, the weather, again, wasn't super hot. The water, not super warm. The raft did float. But it wasn't warm. It wasn't a nice day. It wasn't, it wasn't like summer, like in terms of being outside when it's actually nice. Now, let me ask you this. Do you ever have, have you ever been in a situation where you hope that things will turn out different than they will? Like different than you know they will? Like if you're really honest with yourself, you know, like let's just be real for a sec. Most of us know when something isn't going to turn out, right? Most of us have that gut, that instinct, that, that intuition that says, this is a bad idea, right? This could go horribly wrong. That's your first sign that you should go the other way, <laughs> okay? You should absolutely go the other way. Now, we, we can try to put hope in situations or circumstances that will, not, that will just not get better. They'll just not get better because we will them to. Do you know what I mean? No matter how much will we put into something, sometimes the situation will just not improve. If we know, if we feel that we shouldn't have done it, no matter how much we will it to, to, to go well, it probably will not go well. No matter how hard I hoped that this was going to be okay, I knew every risk that I was taking by going out on the river. After about 15 minutes into our float, a friend of ours on the raft kind of jokingly commented, <laughs> it's sure a good thing that this raft floats because I can't swim. <laughs> what? You can't swim. Within moments, within, <laughs> within moments of this, I'm sure that James Cameron, the director of the Titanic, I'm sure that he yelled, action, because as if like scheduled from a movie, the screws began pop, 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 popping out of the boards, the barrels released from their tethering and flipped out behind the raft, all of the boards peeled up like a, an accordion, and I got propped into the air sitting on the other end of it, watching as the entire raft began slowly sinking into the water. All of my friends, Elise, boom, into the water, and I'm sitting there up on the edge, like, thinking to myself, this could still turn out. <laughs> Honestly, that's what I thought. I still had a hope. I still had a little bit of a hope. And, and for a moment, I had absolutely no idea what to do. I had no idea what to do. I was trained as a lifeguard. I was a swim instructor. That should have been enough to know that this was a bad idea. Okay? That should have been enough, but it wasn't. So I'm in this situation. What now? What now? I was beyond any area of expertise that I had. This was a hopeless situation. Let's look at what hopeless means, and we'll put this up here. Hopeless is a great definition. I love this. It says, having no expectation of good or success, not susceptible to remedy or cure, incapable of redemption. So when you label a situation hopeless, it's pretty fitting. Uh, incapable of redemption, not susceptible to a remedy or cure, or having no expectation of good or success. Th th those things we would agree with. We would understand this. Let me tell you this. Hopeless situations can be small. They can be small, even minor problems, but they can also be massive, life-altering moments that make it hard to experience hope, that make it hard to experience that hope. But today, I want to talk about the foundation of hope 
that we have in Jesus. When you open your Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we are instructed to place our hope in God. God who has invited us to call him Father. And for our hope, for all of our hope to be put into relationship with him. Whether you've always believed in God or not, or just began believing, or are here today and you're not even sure about this whole God thing. I get it. See, we have a real hard time. We have a real challenge in our life, this, this idea of putting our hope in the Lord, or putting our hope in, in really anything, let alone God, right? The, the real reason for this is because we are, we are the very best. We are actually, some of you are actually experts at creating safeguards and protections around yourself. And, and we've been told, understandably so, that uh, we, we believe that if we have the right education, that if we have the, 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 the right, you know, looks and appearance, we'll be okay. If you have the right connections, things will turn out, right? If you, if you marry the right person and you save well and you, you're disciplined and you stay away from drugs, drugs and you just say no, things will be okay. If you tune out the world and all of those other things, and if you're really careful and you're really smart and you're really connected and valued and appreciated, you do it all right, then you'll have hope. Fully. Hopefully. Hopefully you'll have hope. We do everything in our power to put our hope in things that we can control, things that we can create, things we manufacture, things that we've told we should place our hope in. Right? In hopes that the foundation will remain secure and stable. The, the worst part is this, is that even as a Christian, we think that tacking on a prayer before all of these things will make it more stable. Or might I even suggest Christian? God, please help this company, help my business. God, please give me wisdom as I try to figure out where to invest. God, please help me. Those are good prayers. Those are good things to involve God in your life. That's great. But what is the difference when we do it from a perspective of saying, I want you to come through for me. I want this to work. We live in a world where it's the bad news before the good news. We live in a hopelessly broken world. And you can try, and you can be careful, and you can plan, and you can invest well, and you can have all of those things seemingly in your control, but at some point in your life, you will begin to recognize that there is not one thing that is secure in this world. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm not trying to even create an argument this morning. But it is great news that God says to you and to me, he says this, yes, you got to do all that stuff, but you do not put your hope there. See, it's way easier to ask God to follow us, to be with us. Go with me while I do what I want to do in hopes that you'll bless it, that you'll take care of it. Me, 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 right? It's so easy to say me, 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 my hope, my God, it's, it's for me. But this morning, I want to share some thoughts with you about what it means to follow Jesus. So let's look, let's start out in the book of Matthew. It's a well-known chapter when Jesus is about to call two of his future disciples, Simon and Andrew. And we're reading here from verse 18. So let's check this out. We'll look at this together as soon as it loads. Yeah, here we go. 
As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, Pe Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now in the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. And that means that if he called the disciples back then by saying, follow me, he calls you and I today by the same way. Follow me. And of course, we want to respond to that calling, don't we? We do. You know, you, you've heard us or other pastors encourage you to pray, right? Right, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to give you my life. We've sung the songs, right? I have decided to follow Jesus, right? We, we've done that. My hope is built on nothing less, right? We, we, we do this together. We want to respond to the calling of Jesus. However, there's one important question that we sometimes fail to ask, and, and this is really, really crucial. The question that we fail to ask isn't, do we want to do it? We do want to do it. The question is, where is he going? See, if you want to give your entire life to something, if you want to give your entire life to someone, I would hope, I would hope that you would care so desperately about where they are going. We do about kids. We do. Who you spent, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. <laughs> right? Where are you going? What's happening? Because, you know, the decisions that we make have a genuine impact on the rest of our life. It's important to understand what it's supposed to look like. You're going to end up where that person is going to end up. The person's destination will become your destination. So the big question for you and, and me this morning is saying, you know, what Jesus is saying, follow me, is we need to have that question answered. Where is he going? Where is he really going? Where will we end up if we actually really are serious about following him? And, and luckily for us, there's one chapter in the Bible amongst many others that give it an answer, to, an answer to this question. And that's in Luke chapter 15. And Luke 15 contains three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. Now what you need to understand is that normally, as Jesus is teaching, what he normally does is he brings, he shares one parable to emphasize and educate us in one significant spiritual truth. Then he moves to another parable for another spiritual truth, and so on and so on. But on a few rare occasions, primarily in the Gospel of Matthew, we see this. He actually uses two parables to communicate the exact same truth. But those are rarities. There's only one time in the four Gospels where he used three parables to communicate the same truth. It's like he's so excited about sharing, this is foundational. This is super important. This is everything you need to know about what it means to follow me. So he gives this. He's like, if you don't get it this time, I'll give you one more. If you really don't get that one, I'm going to give you one, one more. But just to be clear, I'm still communicating the exact same thing. And, and what this communicates is the answer to the question about where he's going. It's really exciting stuff. Let me just say, I'm just really excited that you're here today. I'm really happy that you chose to be here. I'm happy that you chose to prioritize being here this morning when you could be anywhere else. Anyways, 
I'm going to read the first two parables, and then I'm going to sum up the third one because it's pretty long. But in Luke 15, 4 to 10, it says this. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and, and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then follows the, the parable of the prodigal son. Basically, one father has two sons. One of the sons wants his inheritance early in advance. He wants to spend it and, and, and ultimately in, in sinful ways. He comes to his senses and he realized it was all wrong. And he decides to go back to his father's house. You know the story. Hoping that the father would receive him as, you know, maybe at least a servant or a slave. But when he's still far away, the father sees him and runs up to him and hugs him and fully restores him to the point where his brother, who was also there at home working the whole time, <laughs> was jealous of the attention and the love that his lost son was shown by his father. You've likely heard these stories before, but let's take a look at them a little closer. You see, in every one of these parables, there is something that's in common. There's something that's in the wrong place. There's something that is in the right place. And there's a person representing God. Now, the first parable about the lost sheep is the parable that we have God representing the shepherd. There is something following this that's in the wrong place. Any suggestions on what that would be? The sheep. The sheep. One sheep is lost. One sheep is not where it's supposed to be. And that which is in the right place is what? The other sheep. The other 99 sheep are in the correct place. Okay, they're where they're supposed to be. You get it now. That's how we're going to work this. There's 99 sheep that are in the right place. There's one sheep that's in the wrong place. The shepherd represents God. Now, the second parable, we have God represented in the woman. There's one thing that is lost. There's the coin. Then there's the, the thing that's in the right place is the nine coins. Then finally, the story of the prodigal son. God is represented by the father, and there's one son in the wrong place and one son in the right place. Now, attitude-wise, he was in the wrong place as well, <laughs> okay? Uh, but physically, he was in the right place. Proximity-wise, he was close. He was in the right place. Now, the big point that Jesus is trying to make here in these three parables after one another is this. In which two categories get God's focus? So number one, in the story of the shepherd. The shepherd's full focus is on that which is in the wrong place. Even if the sheep is in a minority, the shepherd leaves the 99 in the wilderness. You see, there's something in the heart of the shepherd. There's something in the heart that cannot stand the thought that even one single sheep that is in his possession and is loved by him would be missing or lost. 
So he leaves the 99. <laughs> That's you and me. He leaves the 99 in the desert, and he goes to seek and save that which is lost. The second parable, the attention of the woman, is fully on that which is in the wrong place. Again, because one coin is lost, she sweeps the house, she carefully searches, she lights a lamp, fully focused on finding and saving and rescuing and getting back that one lost coin. And finally, the third parable. The father's focus is on his last son. And how do we know that? Because when he returned, the Bible says that when he was still far away, the father saw him. What does that tell us? The father was standing there looking every single day, awaiting the return of his son, praying that this might be the day that his son would return home. And when he finally saw him over the horizon, he ran for his life to greet him and welcome him back. So the point I'm trying to make is, is this, is that Jesus has his attention on that which is lost. Jesus has his attention on that which is lost. Your hope, our hope, comes in living out the values and principles of Jesus, recognizing that we were lost. He says to each one of us, follow me. Follow me. Follow me not only to church on Sunday, not only throughout the week, but follow me more than anything, more than anything you do. Follow me to find the lost sheep. Follow me to find the lost coin. Follow me to find the lost son or daughter. And that church is the original version of Christianity. That is it. This world needs a hope found in Jesus. This world needs hope. And you and I, this is so awesome, you and I were meant to be the, the flag bearers of that hope. We were meant to go into the world to extend the arms of the Father and welcome people back into relationship with him. Jesus has his eye on you. His heart is fixed on you but he is focused on that which is lost. Listen carefully now. If your hope is built on anything else other than this, it's not Christianity. Jesus didn't come to disappoint people or shatter the hopes and dreams of those that were awaiting a savior. No. He was so committed to saving that which was lost. His focus was there on you and I. That in order to give us hope, hope for life, hope for freedom, hope for more than we could ever imagine, hope for more than the world could ever offer us, he knew that he had to die. The Savior, the one that inspired such hope, had to die. Put yourself in the position of someone who was alive when Jesus was born. The great hope and anticipation for what that meant, what he was to become. You follow him or witness him, or hear about him for the days of your life. And then Jesus goes to the cross and dies. What? How? That wasn't the plan? What are you doing, God? I thought you were sending a savior, and now he's on the cross? I thought you were supposed to be our king. We followed you. We left everything. 
to be with you. What about us, Jesus? What are we to do now? Take yourself off the cross, Jesus. We're hopeless without you, Jesus. See, even in his crucifixion and his death, he was focused on that which was lost. You have, you have no idea. You have no idea what will start to happen and the things that will start to move when you step into the true calling of following Jesus. Oh my goodness, it's so excited. Let's circle back here for a minute. Let's get back to these two men that we read about in Matthew 4. One of them was called Peter, and we know, and he went on to follow Jesus, and he did really well. But later on in his life, at a time where Jesus was arrested and the road to Calvary started, Peter made an adjustment in the way that he followed Jesus. And Matthew 26, 58 says, But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. At this point, when the stakes are the highest and the cost is higher to follow Jesus, it involves the risk of your own safety, of your own comfort, of your own security. All of a sudden, Peter makes the mistake of, of allowing a distance to, to, to happen between him and Jesus. His hope becomes unstable. And as you read the, the chapter later on, you'll, you'll see how people come up to Peter asking, Peter, Peter, aren't you one of the disciples? Hey, you, aren't you one of the disciples? Didn't you follow Jesus? And his response is, who, me? No. No, that wasn't me. I don't know that man. And he curses and he swears. And, and what we see here is that when we allow a distance in our following, our foundation of hope begins to crack. You know, our relationship to other people the expression of the heart, the father heart of God begins to change. Everything that we're supposed to do to this world changes when we allow a distance to occur between us and Jesus. God's intent was to seek and save the lost, was to send his son so that we could find life. We were lost, but the further and further that we distance ourselves from the calling and following of Jesus we lose any ability to stand on a foundation of hope. All of a sudden, the focus shifts and it becomes on our security, on our comfort, not on the security and mission of Jesus. Finding the lost sheep, the lost coin, or the lost son. You see, I, I believe that if people had come up to Peter a little bit earlier, Peter would have said, oh my goodness, yes, I follow Jesus. Come, can I pray with you? Do you want to follow him as well? Can, do you see that, how when our hope is established in Jesus, that there's an expression that allows us to live in a confident place to say, I want to invite you in. I want to welcome you in. You need to know Jesus? Come with me. Come with me. But the further we get, the farther away that we distance ourselves from the Father, from Jesus, the further that we get, our hope, our hope, everything that we have, falls away. And it doesn't last. It cannot sustain itself in this world. And the outcome of that is that someone misses out on the opportunity to hear about Jesus. I'm so happy that the story doesn't end here, though. I love that the Bible condition, continues, that the, the, although the foundation is compromised and there's weakness and instability, that we have great hope. 
Because even in the darkest time, even in our most insecure places, we are welcomed back into the Father's arms. And we can find hope again. Amen? After the resurrection, he was fully restored. He was fully restored, and he was back at, at following Jesus up close, and, and immediately it was all about other people again. He, he was all about the original version, all about the lost sheep, all about the lost coin, all about the lost son. I mentioned that the Titanic a little bit earlier in, in joking, um, but you know the tragedy. Um, there was this huge ship, the largest man-made object in the world at the time, and it was going from Southampton on its maiden journey across the Atlantic over to the U.S. It had about 2,201 passengers on board. In the, in the middle of the night, the ship collided with an iceberg and it started to sink. And, and it took quite a long time for the ship to go down, actually about three and a half hours from impact until it completely disappeared. And there was a lot of time for lifeboats to be placed in the ocean. The, the, the strange thing is this, is that when you study the story of the Titanic disaster, the lifeboats that were lowered into the ocean throughout the first hour after the impact, they were only half full at best. The Titanic lifeboats had a capacity to save about 70 people, and it's clearly documented how many people ended up in each one of them. The first hour, they had only between 30 down to about 12. So that meant that when the ship finally went down in the ocean, there were all these lifeboats only about half full with the capacity to save many more. All of a sudden, there were hundreds of people now in the water fighting for their lives, screaming for help. And, and this is where um, they call the second disaster of the Titanic happened. The fact that even though there were so many lifeboats, seats to spare, everybody started to row away from the disaster. They managed to shut out the fact that people were struggling for their lives. <laughs> that we could actually do something to help. But they were satisfied with having been saved themselves. And they began rowing away. And only one single boat ever returned to pick up the survivors from the water. Now this is one version. This is one version of end time Christianity. That kind of thinking where we're just happy with the fact that we've made it. You know, we know Jesus. We're going to be on our way to heaven. You know, hope assured, right? We sing the songs, in Christ alone my hope is found. We sing those things, but even though the boat has so many more seats, we row away from the scene of the disaster. Church, we've got to begin believing and hoping for a body of believers that will not end up with this attitude. I'll invite the band to come. John Harper was a 39-year-old Scottish evangelist. And, and he was on the board of the Titanic so that he could go over to Chicago where he was going to have a big crusade and preach the gospel to thousands of people. And with him on the trip, he had the apple of his eye little daughter, Annie Jesse, just six years old. I'm going to try and make it through this. Annie, Jesse, and John were among the first ones to realize the danger that they were in. They were among the first ones to get out of their cabins. How do we know that? Because it's one of the first lifeboats that were lowered into the ocean. Annie, Jesse, Harper is registered as one of the passengers. However, not John. 
The other passengers of the lifeboats all witnessed how John Harper came up with his daughter. He held her, kissed her forehead. He looked at her and said, I'll see you sometime later. I love you so much. And he put his daughter into the lifeboat, made sure she was well taken care of, and as the lifeboat was lowered, he started running around the ship, pounding on cabin doors, calling out women, children, people who did not know Jesus. Get to the lifeboats now. Go. Women, children, and people who don't know Jesus, get to the lifeboats. If I die tonight, I know where I'm going. I'm just going to get there a bit sooner than I thought. But if somebody dies tonight without knowing Jesus, they will move into an eternity separated from God. All around him, lifeboats were lowered. He could have gotten into any one of them, and, and, and no one would have blamed him, but he didn't. He just kept calling for people to get in the boats, get themselves to safety. John Harper ended up being one of hundreds in the water that night and, and realizing that he was in the water that the lifeboats were rowing away. He realized that there was zero chance for survival. So he changed his battle cry and started to call at the top of his voice, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Countless testimonies testified that above all the cries of anguish, there was a male voice calling out, God only knows how many people heard that in the last few minutes and seconds of their lives and gave their hearts to Jesus. But a year later after the disaster, there was a reunion for those that survived the Titanic. And the first person to come up and give his testimony was a young man called William John Millors. And he said, I was only 19 when I boarded the ship. And I was one of many hundreds who ended up in the water that night. And I still remember, he said, holding on to pieces of debris, trying to make it, but realizing that I'm going to die tonight before my life has even begun. But then he shared that, that the current brought him close to a man, later identified as John Harper. And this man looked at, 19, uh, looked at the 19-year-old and shouted to him, do you know Jesus? And William was not really prepared for the, the question at the time. He didn't know what to say, and John Harper called out to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The currents brought them apart, and Williams was trying to process what he just heard, and a few minutes later, the currents brought them back together again, and John Harper called out, do you know, do you know Jesus now? <laughs> Williams responded, no, sir, I can't say that I do. And again, John Harper called out, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That was the last time anyone saw John Harper. However, William John Malores gave his life to Jesus right there in the water. And minutes later, he was picked up by the only returning lifeboat that night. And a year later at the reunion, he shared his testimony and ended it by saying this, I was saved twice that night. Church, here are the two versions of Christianity one where we get half full lifeboats just happy to roll away our hope is built on everything that we can control 
considering only our comfort, our safety, more than anything to even think about risking for the lost coin, the lost sheep, or the lost son. Or we can ensure a stable foundation, a stable foundation to be the difference maker in our generation. And and my challenge to you this morning is to realize that now is the time to follow Jesus. He is real, and he's going and following and pursuing you, each and every one of you. He cares for you. And as he cares for you, his desire, his everything that Jesus is about was so that he, by saving you, could encourage you to have the hope to share with others. Maybe you're here today and you're realizing that your hope is built on too many things and priorities set by the world. Today, it's time to choose. It is time to choose if you will follow Jesus. He died for you. He came seek and save you. The good news is that Jesus came for the lost. Something happened to me, I know where I'm going. But that does not mean that I'm done. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. He's perfect in every way. He was the innocent sacrifice who died in our place. Jesus made the payment for our sin. His shed blood was so that we could be forgiven. The world thought the Savior had been murdered, but Jesus knew that in order to truly save you and I, he had to die. God raised him from the dead so that anyone, and this includes you, who call on his name, would be set free. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? If you're here today and you've been feeling pulled in different directions, the world is tugging at your heart and tugging at your mind and and you're growing weary, you're feeling hopeless, but you see that your hope can only be placed in Jesus and you want to pursue that and you want to choose him to lead and guide your life, whether you know him or not today, would you raise your hand if that's you that's saying, I want to tune out the noise. I want to follow Jesus with everything I have. Yes, yes. Hello, so many hands. Yes, yes. Father, I pray for all of us this morning, God, that we would recommit ourselves to you today. God, that our hope would be built on nothing less than Jesus Christ. God, that in that firm foundation, God, we would see that our calling as believers is to go and seek and save the lost. Give us courage, God. I pray in this room, God, for anybody that may want to choose to follow Jesus for the first time today. If you have not yet accepted Jesus into your life, but you want to choose to follow him today, would you raise your hand boldly this morning with all eyes closed? If we're online today, you can feel free to raise your hand as well, and someone will communicate with you there as well. Church, would you repeat after me this morning? I give my life to Jesus. Save me. Forgive me of all my sins. Fill me with your spirit. I want to know you, and I want to follow you. Lead me to show your love, to be a light in a very dark world.
thank you for new life. I give you all of mine. In Jesus' name, I pray. Church, you are a part of something. God's goodness, his faithfulness to each and every one of us should inspire us on to make sure that our boats are not even close to half empty, but overflowing. Would you sing with us today as we close? of the Father and seek and save the lost. Go this week equipped and envisioned to bring more into this place. I'm believing for this place to fill, to be busting at the seams this year, to see every seat filled, to see families know Jesus, to see children grow up knowing Jesus, to see one another grow in relationship with each other while remaining focused on seeking and saving those that need the Father. Bless you as you go today. Thank you for coming to church this week. We'll see you next week.
Segen.